Welcome to episode 188 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. What word would you use to describe your first year attending a big annual conference? I'm guessing the word overwhelming crossed your mind just now, perhaps followed by the phrase, like drinking from a fire hose. We all know that first timers need support, which is why most large events have a first timer orientation. Some events even visibly identify first timers with special ribbons so they can be warmly greeted throughout the event. That first year is a doozy because you're trying to go to everything, not knowing whether you'll ever attend again. That's exhausting. Add to that, you don't know anyone, so you're floating around for several days, alone in the crowd. And your intentions to meet people go out the window once you see everyone clustered together in those tight huddles, aka bagels. Even though your first year was overwhelming and a bit lonely, You decide to go next year thinking it will be a lot easier in year two. The first year, you probably chose to go because the event was logistically easy to get to, maybe just a quick drive or short flight away. The next year, though, it's likely being held across the country. It requires a lot more logistical effort and is therefore more expensive to get to. And what about your experience year two? Is it that much better than your first year? You're still trying to get to too many sessions, so overwhelming is still an appropriate word. You didn't stay in touch with anyone from the previous year, so you still feel like a newcomer trying to find your people. You get to the end of year two and think maybe this isn't worth your time and energy. Maybe you won't come back next year because it would require another long plane ride and it's just not clear this is the right event for you. A few years later, the event is back in your region, so you decide to check it out again and discover that it feels like you're a first-timer all over again, overwhelming and lonely. Your challenge for this week, break this cycle. Commit to attending three years in a row before deciding if an event is worth your time and energy. Year three is when the magic starts to happen. Between years two and three, you stay in touch with the few people you met and make plans to catch up at the event. Since you committed to attending at least three years, you don't try to do every session your first two years, making the experience less overwhelming. If you get to year five, it will start to feel like a reunion and you will arrange your life so you can return every year. Volunteering for a committee or joining the board feels like the next logical step, which amplifies your reputation within your industry. But for all of this to happen, you need to get to year three. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest isn't your typical life coach. After working in sales for two decades, He became a certified life coach in 2005. In a world filled with woo-woo life coaches, his opinionated and direct approach is refreshing and gets results. Eight years later, he launched Coach the Life Coach because he had learned how to build a successful coaching practice and he was tired of watching new life coaches struggle to survive. He helps them build a coaching practice that is sustainable and profitable. He has written over 1,500 self-development articles is the author of 11 books, including The Clarity Method, Tap into what motivates your clients, your colleagues, and you. 
please join me in welcoming Tim Brownson. Robbie, thank you. I could have written it better myself. What an awesome introduction. Appreciate it. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for joining us from your office in Orlando, Florida. It's such a pleasure to have you on here. And as you know, this is a show about building strong networks in the context of the conversation is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, I think to me, leadership, there's a, there's a the quote, something about when people were asked to um, or somebody was at, was asked to define integrity and it was doing the right things when n- nobody was looking. And I think leadership's about that. To, to me, leadership, so I'm a big fan of football. That's your football, American football. And, and I see people talking about certain coaches and what have you like. They're not animated enough. And they're, they're obviously not into it. They're not yelling and screaming on the touchline. And yeah, you can lead like that, but you can also lead by just a quiet determination that people know what you're thinking and you, you don't need to, to, to bellow at people. Um, so, so really it, it, it's just that, that, you know, all the, all great leaders to me will, will do anything. They will do the jobs that need to be done. They will get their hands dirty. They're not above certain tasks and so on and so forth. They're, they're about, you know, demonstrating through, um, through, through, doing the basics you know so it will be like a, 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 a headmaster at the school will be prepared to go into the cafeteria and, and serve food because that's what needed to be done that day so that that to me is a true leader in terms of myself i don't know i, I almost i'm english i almost feel uncomfortable in saying this but i was always prepared you know in the businesses that i owned and the businesses that i worked it, yeah, I was never afraid of going, doing the basic stuff. So going on to the shop floor, and I worked in engineering way back when, and 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 you know going on a lathe or what have you, or um, in um, in sales management, picking up some accounts for for um, uh, 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 somebody that worked for me who was off sick that couldn't go and do it. So I, so, so to, to me, it's that. It's just like. Pulling in the same direction, and, and when did I realise that? Probably when you sent me the email about this, because I've never really stopped and thought about it. If I'm going to be honest, <laughs> Tim, I love that last part. <laughs> you know, um, it sounds to me like leadership is for you a verb, and it's an action, mm, yes. right? It's not a title; it's an action, and it's about taking sometimes the most basic action of like doing the thing that needs to be done. Um, I want to actually pull you back though in time, Tim. I want to take you back to to like primary school. I want to I want to be thinking of like what were you like on the on the you know playground? Uh, did you run for school office? Did someone see potential in you, or did you look up to anyone? Like how did how did you think about leadership before you even knew what the word was? Wow. So um, pretty much. Interesting enough about my mum passed away a few years ago now, it's probably seven or eight years ago, and I was going back through some old stuff and I went back to England for the funeral and uh, I found some old school reports of mine that she's got and pretty much the, the theme running through these school reports was Tim needs to be the centre of attention. Now, I'm not sure that I necessarily now agree that's a thing for leadership. Like I say, it's like that quiet, determined thing. But it was all, you know, for me, it was always... I think it manifested with me and wanted to make people laugh. I was a typical kid at school that wanted to make people laugh. And whether that's, you know, wanted to make people laugh or just want the best for people, people to feel good about things, that was kind of my modus operandi, I would say. So, so I think, yeah, as a kid, I'm not sure I was a leader 
how I'd view leadership now, but I, I led in terms of, come on, we've got to have fun. And, yeah. and that, you know, which is crucially important to me. Not none of this really matters if we're not enjoying it. I'm curious culturally, um, you know, as an American, I was socialized to stand out. Right. You know, the, the individual is right. important here. Uh, but in your culture, as you were growing up, standing yeah. out was a bad thing. I mean, like for any yeah. reason, it was just, just blend, like just yeah. go with the flow. And yet you were, you know, I mean, that was sort of the like, you you were the center of attention. You want to make people laugh. Mm. How did people relate to you around that? Was How was that seen? And how does that internalize for you as you grew up? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right that, that, that the difference in cultures, you know, I moved to this country, I, I thought I knew the US well, I'd worked for a couple of US companies, I'd been on business over here and, you know, dozens of holidays, I'd come over here once, twice a year and I thought I knew the country, but I, from a, it was a bit of a culture shock in terms of that, you know, in terms of the fact that, you know, here you're in, encouraged um, to be the centre of attention, you're encouraged to, you know, speak your mind and so on. Um, I, I don't think... It, in all honesty, Robbie, I don't think it's anything that I ever gave it much thought. I was just like being me. You know, I, I was brought up in a household that was pretty unremarkable, other than the fact, well, it was probably remarkable in the fact that it was unremarkable, you know, no drunken parents or abuse or, you know, being uh, no um, negative comments because, because I didn't get straight A's and, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I don't think it's something that, that I've really ever considered as, well, that was my life and that's what I did. I went out, you know, I wanted to, I, I suppose in some respects I'm a closeted comedian, stand up. I think I always wanted to do that. And it was just it was just being allowed to be who I was. And I'm some, I sometimes think, even in America, sometimes people aren't allowed to be who they are because there is the opposite way you know, the pushing forward, the competitive parents, you know what I mean? You've got to go and do this and you've got to stand up and whatnot. Some people, that's just not what they're here for. Mm, yeah. So when you were a kid, you know, did you have any sense what you wanted to do in life? Because you ended up in sales and then in life coaching, probably neither were the things that kids are talking about <laughs> or even in high school or college, like not things people are like, I know I want to go into sales. And then if yeah, that- no, nobody ever says that people want to be a fireman or sell ice cream or something. Yeah. No, I didn't. Uh, I had no clue. I, I mean, uh, you know, I'm 57 now and I'm still pretty immature, even by 18 year old standards. So at that age, you know, I left school when I was 15. So I'm from a generation where I never went to college. Well, I did actually. I went back late, later on in life. But, um, you know, I, I, I had no clue what I wanted to be. So like most people that end up in sales, as you say, nobody says a careers day. What do you want to be? I want to be a salesperson. No, they they, they don't do it. They uh, they people fall into sales for the most part, and they usually fall into sales because they can't do anything else. So I tried to be a chef, and I, I sucked at that. And then I tried to be an architect, and I sucked at that. And then I drove a, a truck for a while. I didn't suck at that. I never had accidents, but you know, and it's kind of like, and then it, an opportunity came. So so I, I kind of fell into it, and I was lucky. Yeah, and I think you know, I, so I, you know, I was started working in the late seventies. I, I just for kids of today and kids leaving school to now, to, um, th- these days, I just don't. There's just not that opportunity. Well, well, there is, but it's kind of different. It's, it's like online and what have you. But um, you know, I, I succeeded for want of a better word, in spite of myself, not because of any grand scheme or cunning plan. Well, I wonder though, what about 
cells once you stumbled upon it or fell into it? What was it that made it feel like it was the right fit when all these other things like weren't a great fit for one reason or another? <clears throat> well, most people that don't work in sales, and actually a lot of people that do work in sales, certainly at a retail level, and uh, it, but most people don't realize there's technical element in sales. So it is a very technical job, and, and, and the sales process uh, can be super complicated. When I finally walked away from sales, those two jobs that I'd been working on, one for over two years, the sales cycle was longer than two years, and it, it's very technical, a, a lot of I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed. So I think for me, it, it was definitely that. It was almost like a challenge, which is why I'm, you know, now with my business, I'm a bit obsessed with SEO, search engine optimization, because it's it's kind of like a challenge. And also with sales is good sales is always looking to provide a solution to a problem. There should be no other reason. You know, whether you're selling their Snickers because somebody's hungry or Boeing 747 because we need to ship people across the Atlantic or whatever, uh, you know, every sale should be to, to provide a solution. So I've walked out of many meetings in my life where I've said, you know what, I, ca- I cannot help you improve this or I cannot help you get clients because of that, you know, with advertising, we're selling advertising, we're selling outsourcing or whatever. So, so it was that, it was that opportunity to help somebody rather than and that's one of the biggest mistakes that salespeople make is to go in thinking yeah, I've got to sell this I've got to, you know it's like no you've got to offer this solution or I've got to help the person in this way and, and that's pretty much what I liked about it. I really love that you underscored that selling is about solving problems you know being being a, a problem solver a solution provider um, because I think that selling gets a dirty sort of rap. Um, and I, you know, me, I'm, I'm in the world of networking also seen as sort of like a, ugh, it makes me feel dirty. Um, so I guess what I'm curious about this is like, how did you come to realize that? Because that's not like, at least how I was raised, what sales is, sales is not seen as noble. The way you just described it sounds noble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like, how did you yeah. real? Like, did someone train you on that? Yeah. Did you like absorb that culturally? Yeah, I mean, how come there's not a, a noble price for sales? I mean, really, there should be. Um, well, I think it's one of my early memories. So, so to begin with, I worked for for my dad's business, and I can remember. And I'm going back now, probably early 80s, 1981, and we used to import steel to make a, a product that we'd then export, what have you. And um, I, I'd, I can't remember how now because there was no online there, but I, I found a source of material um, overseas in, in India that, that was cheaper than where we were buying it from in, in Sweden. And it wasn't like a lot. And I went to my dad, I was like, really pleased, like, you know, we can get this. Uh, in 45, it's called. So we can buy it from India and we can save like three pounds a ton or whatever. And he looked at me like I just said I wanted to murder the cat or something. He's like, well, why would you do that? Now, I've worked with these people for 10 years. I trust them. Their the material's great. And why would you do that just to make more money? And... I can still remember where I was where I had the conversation and everything about it. And that kind of, so, so I guess what I'm saying is my dad, you know, he, he was from a generation. I don't think he'd kind of get to that business today because he, everything was done on a handshake and a, you know, 
I trust you and you trust me and you know every now and then it goes wrong but for the most part it doesn't so 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 I think it was that and that started to be like well hang on it's not just about generating revenue there's a little bit more to it that you know that it has to be a win-win because and I say this to salespeople that, that work for me and it's the biggest the biggest buzz in sales shouldn't be the order it should be the reorder because if you, anybody can get an order if you push and you push and you push but getting the reorder means you did something right in the first place and people trust you and they want to come back and, and sign up again so that was always my uh, my approach to sales I guess. Yeah, I mean, Tim, my background is actually in fundraising. And what you just described is also a truth in fundraising. Like right. if you could push someone to make a donation, but they're not going to feel great about it and they're not going to come back and renew. Right. Right. Cool. So, yeah. so it's really very, very similar in, in a sense. I imagine, you know, relationships became the basis of a lot of how you did business. I mean, that's like good sales are based on that. And actually I had a, a great interview uh, back my first year with someone, uh, her name is Stephanie Chung. I'll put the link in the show notes. And Stephanie learned her craft of selling by selling private jets. Oh, wow. And she's wow. a woman of color and she's yeah. not a pilot. And so I found this remarkable. Kudos to her, yeah. And she yeah. said, you know, it was just like everything we talked about, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, if you're selling private jets, you're not just going into a room and spraying and praying your business cards around the room, right? They're not like, uh, spamming people <laughs> on email or postal mail or, yeah, I mean, it's just day. like, it doesn't work. You know, you're not selling them something they don't need because no one like accepts that order when it's a private jet. So I've since then told people like, really think about the stuff you're selling as private jets and approach it that way. But <laughs> you know, how, how do you think about the relationship aspect of the sales process? And like, what did it teach you as you, as you sort of grew in that career? Well, I think it goes back to what I was just saying. It's looking, well, firstly, understanding. So, you know, I talked about the technical element of sales and, you know, the first starting point for most sales of any value should be a fact find. So really understanding, you know, what, what it is that you, what is the pain that your client is going through, whether that's, um, it doesn't matter, yeah, with coaching, it could be. So for, for me in my early days, yeah, I used to focus quite heavily on stress management. Well, the pain can be, well, I'm stressed. Well, that doesn't really tell me anything. What's the, well, I'm not sleeping very well, therefore I'm snapping with the kids. Therefore, my relationship isn't as good with my partner as it could have been. Therefore, you know, I'm not as productive. But, you know, and so, so you, you, you keep on drilling down. So the sales relationship is always focusing on that, well, what can I do for you? You know, how can I help your life be better than it is now? Um, because because if you can't, then there's, there's, there's no sale. There should never be a sale. You know, it's just, so it's just focusing on that all the time. And, and that's not trying to sound like, you know, holier than now or, you know, I'm just like the saint-like figure. Because, again, it comes back to what I said before. It's a win-win. So you focus on, you know, what's right for them. And, and then you get what's right for you as well, and, and everybody wins, and, and uh, life will be fantastic. You know, so, so I think that, that, to sum it up, sales should never be seen as a zero-sum game. If as a salesperson you think you've won over your client, then you're not a salesperson, you're a con artist, or you're just manipulating people. You know, it's got to be like, I really help them. And guess what? They help me and I'm going to get paid for that, which is fine. Yeah. I'm curious, what are the kinds of products that you were selling? You did two decades in sales. 
Right. So um, mainly a good proportion was was outsourcing. So I sold HR. So one of the companies I worked for was ADP, Automatic Data Processing, which is the world's biggest payroll company. So I was selling payroll HR solutions. I also worked for another big European HR company, but I also worked in media selling uh, websites, um, advertising, etc. Yeah. So really providing solutions to the problems people have and managing all that data. Yeah. Yeah. So, which means that when you made the decision a, a while back now, 15 years ago, to, mm. to focus your career in a different direction, the, you had the sales part down. I think a lot of people don't, you know, when they first move to, to being self-employed, they may have a passion project, but they, they weren't, really aren't comfortable with the, the sales process, the, the how to even like ask for the sale. You had that. What was the challenge as you made that shift for you? Like, did you no. know where you wanted to go next? Was that super no. clear? I had no clue. So it's kind of embarrassing. My first two or three years as a coach was like, just like a, a, a disaster, really. It was just like a blueprint of how you don't start up your own business. Because I, I thought, so in sales, you're often liaising with marketing departments. And, you know, I thought I knew something about marketing. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I really didn't. I just, um, I, 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 it was, yeah, I didn't, knew nothing about online marketing. So I made the decision that I wanted to do everything online. So I, I'd had enough of um, going to Chamber of Commerce. Well, I didn't really do that, to be fair, to be for the last 10 years. But no, just enough of going to meetings to, to, to just network in person. I wanted everything online. And obviously 15 years ago, so I started blogging in 2006, uh, which, you know, it's fairly fairly new then i mean I, I guess it's probably where podcasting is now it's you know it's still you know it's going to grow a lot more uh, um so I, I just thought well i just need to be there and people are going to want to hire me and and they kind of did because at the time i think there was maybe two other life coaches in orlando there's probably 200 now you know there's all these people fighting for the for the same space for an industry it's not really grown in terms of, of demand so i just set off on a wing and a prayer i'm kind of glad robbie that I, I i didn't know what i now know because i'd probably have not done it, it you know it was like starting everything from you and i thought oh yeah like you you know i thought okay well i, I understand sales how hard can it be guess what? Really, really hard <laughs> if you don't know the element of marketing as well. Yeah. How did you happen upon life coaching? Um, so about 2003, 2004, I was just stress senseless. And I actually I signed up to do a stress management diploma at Sheffield University in England. And I did that. And as I was doing it, I thought, this really is terrible advice. It was like, I could bore you with the the, the the technical element of what they were teaching, which was based in science that was done in the 40s and 50s. I just thought, this isn't very good. And I started just, I, I, I was devouring uh, audio books on CD then. There was no Audible, unfortunately. I was spending a fortune buying CDs of self-development and listening to all this stuff. And I just, just because I was driving all over the, uh, over England, because, you know, my, my patch well, was most of Northern England. So I was driving, I was in the car probably six hours a day when I wanted meetings and I listened to this stuff. And then I, I don't know, and I've been asked this so many times, you know, what, where did you hear about life coaching? I honestly can't remember now, but I did hear about it. And then I found a company 
the south of, of England did training and I went to the training really just to make me a better manager. I thought, okay, it's going to give me some skills in terms of communication, what I need that I can definitely improve on. And I did it. I thought, oh, I want to do this. And that was about the time we were looking to move to the U.S. And my biggest concern with moving to the U.S., so the saving grace of, of being in a, sales in the U.K. is you get five weeks, or I was getting five weeks paid vacation plus another two weeks of bank holidays, which was paid. So seven weeks paid vacation. I knew if I moved to the U.S., I'd be lucky if I got two weeks. I'm like, this is a lot of stress. I need those seven weeks. You know, I took them all off. You know, I wasn't running, you know, I wasn't doing a, a vacation rolling over. Uh, so then I just thought, hang on a minute. This takes a lot of the skills I've already got, rapport building, question asking, listening skills. And, you know, it allows me to do something totally different working for myself. So that was it. And pretty much I made a decision and, and walked out of my job six months before we even left the U.S., to the horror of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is a big shift. And yeah, and totally. I and I presume that that's not the advice you give people who are getting started these days. No, no it isn't. It was ridiculous in, in hindsight. You know, I, I got lucky. Yeah, when people say to me, "What's the best way to become a coach?" My answer is always slowly. Do it incrementally. Learn some of the skills. Implement it. Start to build a website. Start to build an organic presence and what have you. This was 2005, when, so February 2005. There just was no competition then, Robbie. You, you, you know, when people used to ask me, what do you do? I used to like saying I'm a life coach because they'd be like, oh, really, a life coach? What's that? I mean, I don't do life coaching. I do occasional client here and there, but for the most part, I don't do it now. But I got to the point where I didn't like telling people I was a life coach because so many people have jumped into it that aren't trained in it, that really don't understand it, and, and, the, and the, the, the rep with the general public that don't really understand it is uh, they're just people that couldn't get a degree in you know, psychotherapy or, or, or whatever, and it's kind of totally misunderstood, and I just got sick of explaining that, you know, what, we, what I did. Yeah, that's a real challenge when uh, the industry as a whole has that sort of reputation yeah. And yet people are drawn for for really great reasons to wanting to come in. It's a helping profession, right? It's a, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a master's in social work, so I get the desire yeah. to like, you know, provide that kind of value to other people. But you, so you did that, you finally figured out the, the salute, the formula for a winning um, company. Like you, you had a good practice going, you did that for a number of years. But the downside was that people started asking you, how are you doing this? <laughs> And you yeah. ended up like a side hustle about helping people right. sort out like how to do how to have a successful practice. Essentially, is that is that the yeah. turning point for you? Yeah, and it was kind of it was a very very slow turning point, Robbie. It probably took like three years before, and I'd just get you know an email here, the email there from other coaches that seen me, you know, the articles I posted or the traffic I was getting and what have you. And uh, I started working with them, and, and one of the things so. Going back to you know what coaching is, and people, people the, the, the refrain I used to hear was you know I don't need to uh, have anybody tell me what to do in my life. You know, coming from you know from a, the background that you've got, that's not our job. Is not to tell people what to do with our life. Our job is to ask questions and facilitate them. You know, to, to make changes internally. Um, so um, I, I was finding that um, when I worked with coaches, I, I was able to. Flip back and forth. So 
I, yes, I could ask them the questions, but every now and then I could say, I ah, don't want to do that. And I kind of like that, being able to almost teach and coach at the same time. So whereas coaching, I'd sometimes be biting my lip because I'm not an expert in my client's life. Well, guess what? I, I do know how, how, you know, I am pretty good at SEO and, and, and using social media to generate clients. So I can say, you know, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. So, so it was that kind of, the 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 just the um, breaking up the different styles that I, I, I really enjoyed. And the more I did it, the more I liked it. And and so then I set up a separate website just for that. And then just over the last two or three years, I thought, you know, I just want to do this all the time because it's tremendous fun. And to be honest with you, you, know, you said in the intro, I've written fifteen hundred self development articles, and it's probably more like two thousand now. But, but I just got bored with it. I, I'm sick of my own voice. You can only say something. There's a book called, that you may be familiar with, As a Man Thinketh was the original title uh, by James Allen. It was written, I think, in 1920, a Jesuit priest in, in England. That's it for self-development. Literally, go and read that book. It's about 90 pages long. That's all, you know, there's, there's been changes made with like neuroscience and why, how we understand things now, why they work, whereas before it was just kind of anecdotal. But that's it. If you change the way you think about things and view things, guess what? Things do change and not in a woo-woo kind of a way, but, you know, from a, you know, from a neuroscience perspective. So I just got sick of listening to myself. You wouldn't think this hearing me go on now, but, but I did. Whereas with, 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 with marketing and with helping people with the business, it's changing all the time. You know, Google had a major algorithm update about two weeks ago, and I, you know, I've got to be on top of things like that. It changes. Facebook's changing all the time and so on and so forth. So it kind of goes back to that challenge again that this is just a big game to, you know, help coaches get above their, uh, above their competition. Yeah, I know. And it sounds like you want to also make sure that you personally are invested in the work. Yeah. And when you start to feel less so, because like you said, you're getting tired of hearing yourself repeating, you know, this stuff ad nauseum, like, yeah, I've said this already three other ways, right? 33 other ways or 330 other ways. Cause you've, you know, put it all out there. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, these challenges are coming and slowly, this is actually true for a lot of people. I think if they were more aware of, um, who comes to them for support, advice and services, they could discover new ideal clients that they hadn't yet asked for money from that, you know, it, it's like after a while you start being asked something. I think it's a good lesson for anyone listening that if people come regularly to you, you know, this is a chance to test it out, create a free oh. masterclass, you know, do a, do a one hour free webinar, you know, that kind of put out, put out a, a 10 tips and just see if people respond to it. And, and it could lead to like a package or a program or online course or coaching. I think that um, it is a slow turn, like you said. It's not an overnight. Too many people want to make shifts quickly in life. I'm telling a life coach that. He's heard this more times than I <laughs> you can count. Um, but I think what you said was true. Like three years is, is both a long time and very, very short. Right. You know, it's like really not a lot of time for you to have made this shift in your life and rediscovered a passion and and committed to it. And yet in the middle of it, it kind of feels like, you know, you're dabbling. It is it real. It's a thing. Yeah. 
and that's exactly, I, I did feel like I was dabbling. It was only like the end of last year where I just said, okay, this is just what I'm going to do. And like I say, my original website is up there and it, it brings inquiries. And, I, and now I'm in a position where I can pick and choose where actually this person, I really want to work. You know, everybody that's in, um, in, in the, the industry of helping people, you, you'd have known this when you're doing social work, that you'll get some people where you, where you think when you're talking to them, Oh, I really want to work with you. You are perfect for me. Of course, you can't ever say that because it sounds as, as dubious, you know, as dodgy as like you say that to everybody. So there are, you know, I will pick and choose and still do that. And also to keep my hand in because I'm working with coaches. I kind of need to know, you know, it's, coaching is a skill and, and like any skill, it erodes if you're not using it. But I, I, I also love, you know, I, I get so excited when I have a, I was going to say I have a new idea, or even whether, whether I read about a new idea. Yeah, I listen to just ridiculous amount of podcasts and reading books and whatever. I, mean, I read something, and oh, I never thought about that. And I, I can't wait to share it with people either on my newsletter or, or one-on-one clients. It's just a, a buzz. Yeah, I'm, I'm 57, and I have never enjoyed work as much as I enjoy it now, or, or certainly never more than I enjoy it now. But, yeah, I, I'm not an early riser by definition, uh, or, or by habit, and now I just can't stay in bed late in the morning because I've just got ideas that I just just need to put them down on. Wow, this is the life that we all of us dream to have. <laughs> that description for me is a life you know well lived uh, while you're still living it. Yeah, not like a past tense kind of way. You're just like huge on content creation. And I, I'm just kind of curious about this because I mean, you mentioned the 2,000 or so articles, the 11 books. Um, I did see your recent blog post about how some of those earlier books weren't like well-refined or well-copy edited, mm-hmm. but you just kind of wrote them and got them out there. You know, you were sort of in the wild west of yeah. uh, the space. And now I think we have to like all create probably a little more curated content is is necessary more than just bulk. But how are you fitting that in as you're building a practice? Like that's something that people really struggle with. Uh, you know, finding both time and how how do you prioritize what kind of stuff and which mediums to put it out in and how to have those conversations unfold and attract the right clients to you. You seem to have created a, a, a method, I suppose, for that, that allows you to like keep churning that out. I wish I had. <laughs> the method is, I've got an idea, I better start typing now before I forget about it. Now, I think I've got one huge advantage over a lot of people, certainly a lot of people my age in this space is, I, ain't, I haven't got any kids. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my wife works full time, so I've got all day to do what I want to do. And no, I, I, I really, I would love to give you some nuggets of wisdom like that, but, but I do literally, so I never see more than three clients a day. So you know, that's three hours and, you know, and a half hour with prep and what have you. So that gives me all the rest of the day to, to just think and write and, and interact on social media. So I'm very focused actually on social media. So I have an Instagram account, never use it. I have a Twitter account, just use it to troll a certain pop. Po- um, politician. Uh, I have a LinkedIn account, really don't do much with it at all. Um, you know, I just focus on a Facebook group that I, I run. So so I don't get sucked 
I'm, and maybe again, maybe this is this is you know um, uh, an aspect of my age or whatever. But I, I don't get sucked down a Facebook hole. So sometimes on YouTube, one of my favourite um, musicians, Andy Weatherall, died this week, and, and I got sucked down listening to interviews with him and what have you. So that can happen from time to time. And Quora, I love Quora. You know, what's it like to be shot wearing a bulletproof vest? Oh, I've got to read that. I've no idea. Um, but for the most part, it, it's just just writing and seeing clients. So that's probably 85% of my waking day, other than I'll usually sit down for an evening meal about eight o'clock. I I just can't be confined, Robbie, by a a strict... And for some people, it's great. And and I think this is really important that people don't try and... It's like the whole... There was a big movement 10 years ago about the get up at five o'clock in the morning led by people like Wayne Dyer and what have you. It's just like, no... Get up at five o'clock in the morning if that works for you. Recognize your body, your biorhythms, you know, what, what feels good for you rather than trying to force yourself because that's the new cool thing to do. So if I feel like writing, guess what? I'm going to write unless I've got a client. If I don't, then I'm going to take the dogs out or I'm going to go on to the Facebook group or whatever. So I, I like, I, I don't work well with being confined by a, by a, by a structure. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I want to ask about this network you've developed over the years, because you've had many different types of careers, work with right. many different kinds of companies, internationally connected. Um, so you have that like global connections as well. How do you, I mean, you have that sort of inner circle of people, but then how do you nurture and sustain connections with sort of the second and third layers out? The people maybe you see annually at a conference or you work with five or 10 years ago or maybe 20 years ago that you liked and really enjoyed, but maybe just only a little connected with these days. Do you have any habits or practices or philosophies around staying in touch? No, (laughs) I really don't. I I just, so, you know, thinking about this interview beforehand, I was thinking, okay, so what do I do with, with, with networking? And, and my, um, so as I said, really, Facebook and LinkedIn are the only two, and, and LinkedIn and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with at the moment because the amount of spam that I'm getting um, from people that can help me launch a high-ticket coaching practice, 6x my business in 10 minutes or whatever. Uh, but I, I tend to stay connected with people. I cannot be connected with somebody who I don't like. So if you went and looked at my Facebook group, there's nobody in there that I'm connected to because, because I think they've got value from that connectivity or the people who they know if I don't actually like them. So all then it becomes not a problem. It's not a chore. It, well, we'll talk to people. So one of my uh, good friend of mine is a guy called Michael Heppel, who's probably probably the number one motivational speaker in, in, the, in the UK, and he's had a number of best-selling books. But I'm not friends with him because of that. I'm friends with him because he makes me laugh and I like him. And, y- y- you know, it's just good to interact with him on Twitter and, and through Facebook and what have you. So, again, I don't – if I was going to take a step back, say I was going about 15 years, getting into this – would it make more sense for me to do him to do what you're asking me about in terms of building a network? Yeah, of course, of course it would. The more people you know, um, the more people you've got to talk to when you've got a book launch coming out, example. But for me, it just becomes emotionally exhausting. I find it very difficult to pretend I like somebody if really I'm ambivalent about them and if we've got different values and, you know, we're just not on the same page. So I'm probably not a great example of that. To be I honest. actually think you are a great example. 
I actually think you are Greg Zamsfield, Sam, and I'm going to explain why. Because I didn't say to network because it was the thing that will grow your reputation. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. said, how do you stay in touch with the people that you used to work with and you enjoy getting along with? So you and I got connected through Liz Scully. Yes. And she started out as a client of yours. Yes. That was a long time ago when she was in a different industry and a different continent. <laughs> um, and you guys, yeah, you were too. And like, you guys have maintained this friendship and relationship to the point where she's referring you to me. That's a great point. That's networking, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, and, and the, the connections that you have through Facebook and LinkedIn, I, I feel like that is part of what you're doing. Um, you stay very present, it seems. You know, you're, I think what, what you're saying about this is so good in the sense that if you don't like somebody, then why are you making the effort to keep them in your life? Right. You know, like, I think that's a good thing for people. I think, I don't, I think again, this is about genuine reconnection or genuine connection. Um, if you do it for the wrong reasons, it doesn't feel good. Right. But when you do it for the right reasons, it's just fun. And I think you're like, I'm not going to do it for shady reasons because I won't enjoy it. Right. So that sounds like sound advice to me. Well, 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 thank you. And you're absolutely right about Liz. I feel hoisted by my own petard there because, yeah, it, we, it, it's true. And, you know, I love our other Facebook messenger chat with Liz at least once a month, I, I would say. And I think then, you know, at the end of the day, everybody wants, to, well, not everybody, but the vast majority of people want to earn good money and they want to have a successful business. But we want to do that. So we can have fun and be happy and connect with the people that we want to connect with. So it's kind of like getting it the, the, the wrong way. I, I see some people as getting it the wrong way around. It's kind of like, well, do you know what? I mean, and I think it was driven by, so I'm a, an extrovert, you may have guessed by now, and, and work. one of the things that I missed tremendously after I left sales and moved over here was suddenly being on my own, in an office on my own. And that's one of the things, you know, without social media, so if I'd have tried to have done this 30 or 40 years ago, I think I'd have been an utter basket case. But with social media, I can get on and I can talk to a friend on WhatsApp and I can say, have you heard this new track by this, you know, whatever, because, you know, still into my dance music from I had a record store like 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and, you know, still into that. And, and I can have these conversations and back and forth. And some of it is people I know through business and some of it is just friends. And, but, I, but I do consider them all friends you know liz is a is a friend she's not an associate or somebody you want hired by. she's just somebody i like talking to yeah. and makes me laugh yeah so that's that's all sounds like good networking and relationship building and community exactly. building so uh this is my favorite question it's our wrap-up question and i want to know tim if we were connecting reconnecting a year from now and we're getting to see each other again which i hope we will and you are telling me about all of your successes from the previous year what are we going to be celebrating? Well, I, I know I've just I've just started a mastermind group actually, so I, I know exactly. I'll be where you are. So I'm starting my own podcast on Saturday. So I'm going to do a podcast. Do you know something, Robbie? I I bought all the kit, uh, and I know where I was living at the time. So it would have been about 2006. I bought all the podcasting kit from a place in Orlando. Went drove over time, bought it, came couldn't figure out how to use, I think it was Audacity, the software, and I'm, you know, particularly, not particularly technical, get, took it all back, and I'm thinking, wow, I could have been Joe uh, Rogan. Not really, not really, not quite as funny as Joe Rogan, but um, so, so that will be one thing. And the second thing is, um, is it, I need to, it, I'll have got a digital product up. So at the moment, all my training is face-to-face, either a course I do or people hiring me. 
and I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that the old eager, you know, if you can't, if I if I can't work through illness or because of vacation, then I don't earn. And this is not a country <laughs> where you can be afford not to be earning. So, so it will be a, a good digital product that's up and running and, and the podcast where maybe I can get you on. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I love supporting anyone in launching a show who has something to say. And Tim, you have something to say. And okay. it'll be another way for you to create amazing content. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Tim. So how can people find you and follow your work? My, my website where I work with coaches is just coachlifecoach.com. Uh, or my book on core values, which is something I'm rapidly passionate about, is the Clarity Method. But better just going to Amazon because I don't sell it on the site. So if you go on Amazon and search my name, you'll find Fantastic. We'll have all those links in the show notes, including links to your other books on Amazon. And you'll find that at ontheschmooze.com. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Yes. And thank you, Robbie. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonate with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 188. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. I believe we need to focus on the year two experience at annual events, which is why I'm working on our new keynote, the year two experience. It's a different take on what is necessary to increase participant engagement, member value, and member retention. This talk is perfect for association executives, meeting professionals, and conference organizers. Art of the Schmooze. Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking, the talk I've been doing for over a decade, is geared towards participants and helping them follow through on their intentions around networking, despite them feeling that it's icky. If you organize events, I welcome discussing how I can share my expertise and humor with your participants. Do you attend events where networking is challenging? Reach out to the organizers to suggest me as a speaker and share my TEDx, Hate Networking, Stop Bageling, and Be the Croissant. You'll find it at robbysamuels.com forward slash TEDx. Thanks. And if you enjoyed this episode with Tim, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H. M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.